Uh, so reading on um, page five and six of the guide, uh, page 1007 of the Back Bible for the first reading, Mark 6, verses 17 to 34. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For God had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And the second reading on page six from the book of Philippians, chapter three, verses 10 to 20, page 1180 in the Black Bible. I want to know Christ, yes, to, the, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, 
even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin um, by honouring saints of the past and by praying an ancient prayer ascribed for this Sunday uh, by Archbishop Thomas Cramner in the 16th century. It's the first Sunday after Epiphany. And the prayer, which I'm going to pray in a moment, I'm going to use old language too, by the way, beseech you, ask you, you know, etc. It's basically something similar to Psalm 25, which is, God, show me your way. Show me what we need to do, what we ought to do, and then give me grace and power to do it. That's what the prayer is, and it's breathtaking. Would you bow your heads for prayer? O oh Lord, we ask you, we beseech thee, mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee now. And grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good prayer, huh? I'm going to refer to that in a few moments' time. So our summer series, four weeks through January, is called Loving God with More Than Your Heart. We established that you need to love God with your heart in Christmas. Jesus said, love God with all your heart. And yet, Christians don't leave their brains checked at the door of church. We established that last week. We also don't surrender our wills, you know, our guts to just do whatever we want to do. We don't just follow our intuition. And we don't ignore our hands either. Uh, we want to serve. We don't ignore our feet. We want to stand with confidence, and we want to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, but he also said, love God with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And so I want all of me to love all of him, for he has given all of himself to save all of me. I want a full-bodied, full-bodied Christianity. So this week, how do you love God with your guts? Now, you may know this. Maybe you don't, but the English word guts does not appear in your English Bibles. There's about 800,000 words in those Bibles at the end of your pews, and guts is not one of them. I put gut in and got three versions of gutter. That's as far as I got. You type in guts in a Bible app, and the words, sorry, we did not find any results for your search appear. So you might ask, why have a sermon on loving God with your guts? And the reason is because the idea is there in, in many ways and translated in different ways. We'll come to that in a moment. And so a short study on this idea could in fact lead someone to become a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, instead of follower of self. Could also lead somebody who does follow Jesus Christ to deepen in their love for him as they examine their drives, their desires, their appetites. 
We English speakers use the word guts often. We do so without a gastroenterologist present, and we feel okay about that because we're not really talking about our innards. We're not talking about our digestive system or our bowels. There, I said it at church. We usually mean one of two things. We mean our courage or our intuition. So, for example, do you have the guts to fill in the blank? you have the guts to climb Everest? Do you have the guts to stand up to the bully? Do you have the guts to go and get that promotion? You know, he showed courage. He had guts, we might say. That's the first way. The second way is what we might, we might use for intuition, meaning, you know, you haven't thought it all through. It wasn't a choice that was clear to everyone, but you felt it in your guts. Um, you knew what you had to do. It was the right thing to do. You knew it deep down. You had a gut-level intuition that it was the right thing to do. And when we get it right, people will say, you know, she's good in this job. She knows it in her guts, we say. But when we get it wrong, we say, man, you followed your guts. Probably you should have thought this through, you might say. Now, what's true of both of them is that something is happening deep down. Not just in your head where you think, not just in your heart where you feel, but in your gut where you decide. In the world of the New Testament, there are ways in which they use the same idea, your guts, your innards. They are, if you're following the outline, uh, they're on page um, 7, there are two ways in which the guts are used in the Bible, but it's not courage or intuition, not exactly, but they are about something that's happening deep down. They come from two Greek words. The New Testament was written in Greek, and I want to show you what they mean. Two ways in which the guts are used in the Bible. Number one, when your guts are your God, and you follow your instincts. And secondly, when your God has guts, if I can put it that way. When your guts are your God, is clear in Philippians 3, verse 19, printed there on page 7. By the way, I rarely do this, show you a Greek, New Testament Greek word, and I rarely do it because I'm not good at Greek, firstly, and secondly, I don't believe in the tyranny of experts, but I really do believe this time it'll help you to understand the message being said today. The word there in the Greek is the word kolia, which means stomach or belly. As in Philippians 3 verse 19, their destiny is destruction, their God is their belly, their stomach, their kolia. Their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. For our purposes, you could say their God is their guts. They make a God out of their guts. Now that's about sin in the end. We'll explain that in a moment's time. The second meaning is when God has guts. There are 12 places in the gospel where a word for guts is used in the gospels. And this is not about sin. That's point number one. This is about salvation. And the original word, imagine it rolls off the tongue if you're a Greek speaker. It's splagnizomai in its verbal form. Splagnizomai, which means to have compassion. An example would be Mark 6 verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had splagnizomai on them, compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It moved him so much that they didn't have a shepherd. 
that he had splagnizomai, which led him to teach them many things. But here it's a, it's a strong word. It's a visceral compassion. It's not just he had a little bit of pity, but he saw them and he had a gut-wrenching love. We'll come to that in our second point. But here's the key. There are two uses, at least, of the word that we might translate guts, and one is the solution to the other. And that's the good news that Christians proclaim. So let me break these two apart. When your, God, when your guts are your God, small g, what does this mean? Well, in Philippians, it means that this group of people, their destiny, their God, their glory, this group of people, these leaders, aren't in fact following God. It means that they are determining things at a gut level. They haven't got wisdom from above, but wisdom from below. Their mind is on earthly things, and because those leaders have their mind on things of the flesh, it has this devastating effect on the Christians in Philippi and on their confidence before God. You heard it a moment ago. Um, Paul said that the gospel that saves is the gospel that's from above, that you and I can have no confidence in the flesh, but rather we can have complete confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. Not having a confidence of the flesh, and that's because there are a group of people that told the Christians at Philippi that they can have confidence before God if, if, they, follow, if they just follow Torah, Jewish law. And in particular, if you get your boys circumcised, not your girls, your boys only circumcised, which was, as many of you know, a Jewish marker that you are in, embraced by God, part of the covenant. And Paul says of those, because Paul was saying, you don't have to do that. And so Paul is saying of those people that have come in, he's saying it with tears, they have become enemies of the cross precisely because they are denying the finished work of Christ on the cross and therefore the full and complete confidence that comes that God has done the work fully, that God saves the work in Jesus Christ by his cross so that in him I can wake up every morning with my feet standing firm. That's week four. Come to that. And so Paul says of those other people, your attention to circumcision is to have your mind on earthly things, on the flesh. You see, there's a double meaning there. Your mind is below, you see. And so they've made this God out of their thing. Their destiny is destruction, the destruction of the confidence of the Philippian Christians. Their God is their coilia, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Even if they think it's a good idea, even if they think they can make a justification for it in Scripture. And that ends up, ends up they, they end up being led by their, their gut level to do this thing, to say this thing. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, it goes like this. Those who live there make their bellies their gods, belches their praise. See, it's all about appetites. And all I can think of is their appetites. But if you have confidence in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are to have your mind above. But our citizenship is not here on earth, but in, currently in heaven as we eagerly await a saviour from there. Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Paul says that they've made a God of their guts. They've made what you do in the flesh, the main thing. So they've elevated my works, my nationality even, to be the thing, the grounds of acceptance before a holy God. And that, he writes, is their God, their basic appetite. And that's was something you could sort of make a case that it was religiously right to do. 
that above and below idea is picked up elsewhere in Paul's letters. This above of the spirit and below of the flesh is picked up elsewhere to mean something similar to what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, but also something different. To be in the flesh is to do what you want when you want. It's to do it your own way. Um, this is not in my notes. I tried this on my family, and they didn't. Buy, they, they thought it was unusual, but I'm going to say it anyway. And if you don't like it, I'll ditch it for 6 p.m. Okay? I had a dream on Friday night, and uh, in the I dreamed pro prolifically. In the dream, I was in a house that had various rooms, and those rooms were called by names of songs, song titles. And there was a room there called I Did It My Way by uh, Frank Sinatra. Anybody under the age of 50 will, over the age of 50 will know. One of the rooms is called I Did It My Way. And when you open the room, there's a, in the dream, there's a slide down in the mud. An interesting dream. I did it my way. I mean, people use that as a, uh, a mantra for having done something beautiful and brilliant. In the Bible, it's the epitome of sin to give in to your desires, your dreams, to do the thing you want to do, and then to have no guts to follow God, no guts to resist the impulses of your own sort of uber or evil desires. In Philippians 3, it's to follow Torah as a God, to do what we want you to do, therefore to resist grace and the finished work of Christ. But in Romans... And in Galatians, the flesh is the realm in which a person chooses to do whatever they want to do. They're, they're guided by their gut. They aren't living according to the Spirit, according to what God wants. They're not yielding to Him, which brings about fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control that God is bringing about in your life like sunlight on a plant. But you're living rather according to the flesh, and it's not just that they're disobeying certain rules that God has, but they are enslaved to self. They are curved in on self, of which Herod, in our first reading, is example par excellence. Right? He wants his brother Philip's wife, and so he rips her to himself. And John the Baptist says, that's not what God wants. God has said, you can't do that. So John the Baptist has him put in prison. And then on the request of a gyrating teenager, girl, whom he drunkenly says, I'll give you everything I want, including up to half my kingdom. And this girl in, you know, goes and says to her mum, you know, the, I want John the Baptist's head on the platter, and out comes this bloodied head, curved in on self, a mess on the ground. In Mark 6, Herod is contrasted with Jesus, who had gut-level compassion on the people. In Romans 16, verse 18, Paul writes, For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. We are often governed by our appetites, aren't we? The things we want, which is in turn driven by fear. What happens if we don't get them? And some of you, by the way, know it's true. There's things that, I mean, you're a pretty simple person, but it's amazing how you don't want to do, you, you, you know are wrong, but you can't stop yourself from doing them. 
But some of you are saying, you know what, I've got good guts. Um, my intuition's fairly good. But everyone who has had a everyone who has had a world wrecking dream, think the twentieth century, they thought they had the right instincts too. No, we are all alike, tainted by sin. Some of us just don't have the power of King Herod. But in Christ, those who've come to Christ have been given a new center, a new heart. You are a new creation. You've been given a heart that follows God's guts, if I can put it that way. So we can begin again to have courage to stand and to not give in, to have a new drive. Romans chapter 6, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as one who has been brought from death to life. So we don't make a God of our guts. Oscar Wilde said cheekily, I can resist everything except temptation. Presbyterian writer Frederick Beekner wrote, lust is the craving for salt of a person who's dying of thirst. You want so much. The thirst is the only language for it, but you don't realize that Jesus is living water, so you go after the thing. You find out it's salt. In Christ, that's not us. And so we need to fight to bend our wills to his will. That's what this whole service is about, if you have been look, looking closely. To yield our desires to his. And it's hard. The old theologians used to call it the mortification of the flesh, put to death, therefore, what belongs to the flesh. To pray, thy will be done, not my will be done. And then to be courageous in Christ and the power of the Spirit, to have the gut to do the right thing. I went to CMS Summer School, the Church Missionary Society Summer School last week. The speaker there gave me something that really helped me. He said, grace is a gift and it changes lives. But like lots of gifts that we receive, for example, at Christmas time, kids get this, right? Uh, they get a toy that moves, but on the packet it says, what does it say? Battery is not included. And every child that has ever received a gift that says battery is not included feels ripped off. The manufacturer, the parent, for example, has given me something but not included the one thing that'll make it go. You've been given a list, you've been, you know God's will if you've ever opened the Bible and read it through the lens of the New Testament, through the life of Jesus Christ. But God's gift of new life in Him comes with good news battery is included. You have the power and the grace to do the thing that you've been shown to do, even if it takes time. That's why Archbishop Thomas Cramner was bang on when he said, grant that they may both receive and know the things they ought to do, what is your will, O God, also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same, to do the things that you know are right to do. But you can do that, says Cramner, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The power of his spirit. Batter is included. So how do you do this, right, to 
not have your guts as God, but rather have God as God? Well, the answer is you've got to know something deep in your guts, <laughs> in your heart, that God himself has guts. In the ancient world, the bowels were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love, you know, driven in me, right? I, I might feel, you know, romance in my, my heart, but the thing that makes me do the thing, to love the person, is, is in the ancient world regarded as the guts, the bowels. The Hebrews put a, a tender edge to it, compassion, kindness, but still with courage, Here's the good news. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, do you know this? Some don't. God has this kind of guts. Our God has guts, by which I don't mean innards. I don't mean courage, by the way, although Jesus had that too. Read the accounts of Jesus going to the cross. I mean he had compassion, saving compassion, uh, compassion that goes to the cross God has splagdigdomai, gut-wrenching compassion. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion, splagdigdomai, on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Look what Herod, Herod's the sheep, right? The shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. He knew what they needed in that moment, which was to be guided in the right way. Splagnizomai. It's not a type of pastor. It's a Greek word, which I think we inadequately translate to have compassion, but it's hard to know what else to do. It is stronger than that. It's more along the lines of being so moved by something that you feel it deep in your stomach. Splagnizomai probably comes from the word splen or spleen. The closest translation that we have is possibly gut-wrenched. He was gut-wrenched when he saw them. It occurs 12 separate times in the Gospels, of which Mark 6 is one. Of the 12 instances, nine of them are used to describe Jesus' response to a person in a situation. None of them are referring to people like you and me. In the three other instances, it refers to people in Jesus' stories. So, for example, it's used to describe the master of the unforgiving servant just before he forgave his enormous debt. He had splagdizomai, compassion. It's used of the Good Samaritan, just before he goes to help the wounded man, he had splagdindomai. Or perhaps most famously, the father of the prodigal son, prodigal son sitting in the pigsty of his own gut choices. Give me my share of the inheritance. Wine, women, and song. Comes to his senses, we're told. We talked about that last week. And he said, in his heart... The guts were the wrong way to go. I'll return to my father and I'll say to him. But just before um, he says his words, the father has splagnizomai. One translation I read goes like this. When the, father, when the son was still far away, his father saw him and loved him so much that it felt like someone had grabbed a handful of his intestines and aimed a punch at his belly. Compassion. The kind of compassion that bears a cost to self. 
the New Testament usage seems to reflect being struck somewhere deep down in such a way as to move someone to action. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seemed at first to be all about morality and being nice and about duties and rules, about guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all of that into something beyond. And that something beyond is God himself, God's love, God's visceral, divine love. It leads us to something beyond. It leads us to a gritty, bloody Roman cross where God swapped his life for mine in the person of his son. And that ought to change our lives by the power of his spirit. This is a gift with batteries to live a new life which is why Paul, demonstrating the new life, wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 8, he wrote, God can testify how I long for all of you with the splagnizomai of Christ Jesus in the noun form. The King James Version weren't so squirmish about it. Do you know what the King James says of that verse? You ready? King James, Philippians 1, verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after all of you in the, can you tell me? in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Hmm? That's there in an English Bible, translating the word correctly. Paul, therefore, was not curved in on self, but rather curved outward to others and upwards to God, an anti-Herod. See, a saving love that moves a sinner like me from death to life, and I'm talking about me, not you. I'm talking about Justin Moffat. Saving, this, this gut love is a saving love that moves a sinner like Justin Moffat from death to life, and that changes everything. It's got to change my appetites, even my religiously inspired ones that I think are right. But also my fears, my desires, the, the pull to do the wrong thing, and then transforms them into something better. So instead of my will be done, we yield. That's what being a Christian is. We submit our wills to his, the batteries that God supplies, his spirit. So instead of my will be done, it's thy will be done with all the guts that go along with such a prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that Jesus had this compassion, this gut-wrenching love that he would go to the cross to save a sinner like me. Give us the same love. Give us the mind of Christ. Show us your will and give us the courage to not be curved in on self, to not make our guts, our intuition, our God. Save us from us doing it my way. Save us from that world which leads to carnage, and show us instead your good and perfect will, your grace, your mercy, your compassion. Show us Jesus Christ by whose spirit and in whose name we pray. Amen.